Good morning once again. If this is your first time here, I apologize for not greeting you more formally earlier. My name is Eric. I'm one of the elders here. It's a blessing to have you here with us. And uh, if we can serve you in some way, we're delighted to do that. Uh, If you're looking for a cool church, I actually have no recommendations for you. But if you're looking for a church where you can hear the Word of God preached faithfully week after week, I think I have a recommendation for you. But I will let you be the uh, evaluator of that after our uh, preaching portion of our service today. Uh, But I would say that regardless of whether you feel like you found that place where you hear the Word of God preached faithfully from week to week here, I do want to encourage you to make that to be the biggest box that you want to check on your church checklist card. Don't go look for the church that has the coolest building or the trendiest website or the pastor who dresses the coolest or the music that you hear on the radio or we could go on and on. There are lots of things that you want to check on your checklist Some of those things are fine to check. Some of those things you probably want to say, just leave that at the bottom of the list. If it doesn't get checked, it's okay. The box at the biggest, with the biggest box, you know, the item with the biggest checkbox at the top of the card should be, where is the word of God preached faithfully? Not most eloquently, not with the most humor mixed in, whatever else. Where can I hear the word of God from week to week? Where do we sing the word, see the word, pray the word, and preach the word? Make that your biggest set of, you know, criteria. I'm not sure if it's, is it criterium or criteria in that case? See, I told you, it's not going to be the most eloquent sermon. But make that the biggest thing you're looking for is the Word of God. And I think you'll be satisfied if that's what you're looking for here at Brainerd. We are working through the book of Luke, which is one of the longest books in the Bible, or at least certainly in the New Testament. I think it is the longest book in the New Testament. So we have been looking through this book, working through it for about a year and a half uh, fully at this point. But we are winding down, and we're in chapter 22. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you in the seat either in front of you or directly underneath you, uh, I believe you're on page 829 today, page 829. We're in Luke 22. Our passage today is verses 39 through 53. I'll be reading aloud from the English Standard Version. I invite you to follow along uh, silently as I, pray, uh, as I read aloud, I should say, from Luke 22, beginning of verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. 
But this is your hour and the power of darkness. I wonder if you've ever been at an amusement park and gotten in line for a long in a long line for a roller coaster. Perhaps you uh, got in that line because you were cajoled or coerced by your friends or your siblings or your parents. You felt like you had no choice, but you got in line and then you got to the very top of the line where now all you do is walk into the seat and pull the lap bar in front of you and buckle in. And instead, you walked right through and went down the other side. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I assume we have some people in our midst who have done that. I wonder if you've ever been assigned to give a speech, maybe in freshman speech class, and the day of the speech comes and you know you're not prepared, or even if you are prepared, you don't want to get in front of people, so you stay in bed and you uh, shirk your responsibility that way. Imagine if when Jesus came toward the end of his life and he had the responsibility of bearing the sins of mankind, imagine if he shirked his responsibility. Instead, we have a passage like this one that tells us that Jesus went all in. He did not shirk back. He did not pull away. He was not tempted to say, this is too much. I can't do this today. I'm just going to walk on by and not fulfill this responsibility. What we see in this passage is that Jesus demonstrated his confidence in the plan of redemption. Jesus demonstrated his confidence in the plan of redemption. So how in the world does that help you or how in the world does that affect you? I would say that one of the primary ways you should respond to this passage is to praise Jesus for his faithful endurance. That's what I want to argue for you today is that you should praise Jesus for his faithful endurance in seeing the beauty of the plan of redemption and the fact that as in the past we've heard people say that all roads lead to Rome. In a sense, the plan of redemption all leads through the cross of Christ and So he demonstrated his confidence in the plan of redemption by going all the way to the the bitter end. In verses uh, 39 through 46, we could ask ourselves, so how do we see that Jesus demonstrated confidence in the plan of redemption? Where do we see that? In verses 39 through 46, we see that Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will. That's one of the ways he demonstrated his confidence in the plan of redemption. He submitted himself to the Father's will. In verses 39 through 42, we see that he understood what was to come. He knew what was on the agenda, and it included a horrifying death on his part. But verse 39 says that he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. So just pause for a second. If you weren't here last week, what we saw last week was, uh, was a section of the Last Supper, or perhaps uh, where, where we take what we know now as the Lord's Supper. Uh, so the ba- uh, Passover meal, the night before Jesus was, uh, was to be crucified. And so here he is now going out of that supper in Jerusalem. And what was he doing every single night? Back in 2137, Luke 21 verse 37, it says, And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives. And so here we have in verse 39 that as was his custom, just saying he was doing this every single night. He was going into Jerusalem during the day, going back to the Mount of Olives at night, and he returned and his disciples, his followers, followed him as they should do. What that means is that he's surrounded by his friends, by his comrades, by those people who have endured, as he said in the passage last week, endured 
trials with him. The days when Jesus is being persecuted, the days when Jesus is being hated by the chief priests and scribes and elders in Jerusalem, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, he had his friends with him, his disciples, and they were helping him, and they were encouraging him, they were supporting him. But when he came to the place, and that's the way Luke describes it. Of course, if you read the accounts in Matthew and Mark, you know that this place is called the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus went into this garden, a place basically filled with olive trees. I think the word Gethsemane basically means olive press. So perhaps a place where they made olive oil from these olive trees. And here he is on the Mount of Olives. He goes to the place and said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Why does Jesus say this? Because again, he understood what was about to happen. He understood that when the sun came up, he was no longer going to be a free man. And so he understood it was to come. But really, one of the first emphases that struck me from studying this passage was this week was how many times Jesus talked about prayer. He comes back to it over and over again, particularly here in verses 39 through 46. And so we see that first of all here in verse 40, pray that you may not enter temptation. And where, in the else, where else in the Bible, what other passage of the Bible comes to your mind when you think about praying to help prevent temptation. I think you're probably going to go to Matthew chapter 6 and the Lord's prayer there, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Jesus continues this emphasis later in this passage as well. Pray that you may not enter temptation. We know though that the Lord is not the one who tempts us, right? So James chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 say, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts No one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So understand that when you're being tempted, it's not God who is tempting you. It's your own flesh warring against you as we know that it does. And so we as Christians are fighting against three enemies who are out to destroy us. And it's the the devil, the world, and the flesh. Jesus overcomes all three at the cross. But we still, as Christians, have remaining sin, have indwelling sin in our hearts, and so we continue to have to war against sin. And so maybe you ask yourself, okay, look, I'm tempted all the time, and maybe the particular kind of temptation that you feel comes to mind immediately, and you say, I've tried praying, and I've still caved, like every time. So what can you do to help fight against temptation? Not at all to to diminish Jesus's command here to pray that you may not enter into temptation. And I will quickly hasten to to add the temptation that he's referring to here is probably the temptation to fall away. Just like Judas has already done. And just like in the previous passage, he told Peter, tonight you're going to betray me three times before the rooster crows, before the sun comes up in the morning, in other words. So specifically, he's referring to temptation against falling away from Jesus But you can have your particular temptation in mind at this moment and say, how can I resist that temptation? And I would urge you, first of all, to simply become aware of that temptation. Like the the when, the where, the what, the how. What is it that tempts you? What are the circumstances when you're tempted? Who's around when you're tempted? Or who's not around when you're tempted? And begin to identify what those circumstances look like and simply just become aware of that temptation. And then, following Jesus' admonition here, pray that you would not give in to that temptation the next time that it surfaces, even if it's at that very moment. I would also urge you to make a plan about how you're going to respond the next time that temptation comes so you're not caught flat-footed or off guard. Perhaps, very significantly, I would urge you to get help. 
And that's typically going to be from any other Christian. Ideally, someone who knows you well in your church. Talk to a fellow church member and get their help. Perhaps including all of their help and including the plan that you've made and your awareness of the, how the temptation comes, build good habits. And so perhaps that means that you know that you're always tempted in the evenings in a particular way, and so I'm going to fill my evenings with time with other Christians, exercise, eating healthy meals, going for walks, reading a book, any of these types of uh, activities that help you that just build good habits so you have like a good uh, foundation for when those temptations are still going to come. And I would sur- simply urge you again from Jesus' admonition to pray throughout this process, to not leave any of it to human ingenuity or to uh, having particularly high self-control. Trust the Lord by devoting yourself to prayer when temptation comes. We see Jesus do this himself in verse 41. He withdrew from the disciples about a stone's throw, just a reasonable distance away, and knelt down and prayed. And what Jesus is doing here is showing that your physical posture in prayer communicates something important about what you're doing in prayer. Not to say that you have to kneel every time you pray, but where else, let me just ask those of you who have heard most of our sermons from Luke, where else have you heard of someone's physical posture in prayer elsewhere in the book of Luke. Well, you can think of the guy back in chapter 18 who's standing in the middle of the temple drawing attention to himself in so doing and saying, Lord, I am so glad that I'm not as evil as those guys over there. And he's standing there. He's standing in the middle. I think if I recall correctly, he's, he's uh, looking up at heaven. This is early in chapter 18. Everybody else in the temple would have been hushed and been like, oh, wow. Look at how spiritual he is. And Jesus is showing the utter contrast of that. No, instead of drawing attention to myself, I'm simply kneeling to say, Lord, my life is in your hands. Even this moment of darkness is in your hands. So he withdrew from them, knelt down and prayed. And what specifically did he pray? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The idea of the cup, he refers to in other passages, Matthew 20, verse 22, and John 18, verse 11, if you're interested in looking at those passages later on, referring to his suffering as a cup to drink. But I think he specifically has Old Testament passages in mind when he refers to this cup. For instance, Psalm 11, verse 6, Isaiah 51, verse 17, and Ezekiel 23, verse 33, all refer to the cup of God's wrath that needed to be drunk to the dregs, which is the chunky stuff at the bottom of a cup, if you've ever drunk some kind of chunky drink. I think kombucha or something along those lines. And there's the nasty sediment at the bottom. That's what the dregs of a cup is. And Jesus understood that someone was going to have to drink the wrath of God to the uttermost. And Jesus understood that he was going to be the one who was drinking that cup. So when he says, Lord, remove this cup from me, why do you think he would be praying that? Was it because he wanted to be like us and walk through the roller coaster line and not actually have to ride the roller coaster? Was it that he was afraid then? Like, this is just too much for me. There's no way I can endure this. Or was it instead that you're dealing with perfect humanity who has never sinned and he's about to have the weight of the sin of the world pressed in on him. And for someone with a perfect nature, that feels like too much. 
I think this is revealing the beauty of Christ, not something that we need to be ashamed of about Christ. There's no sense in which he's shirking his responsibility. He's simply acknowledging, I am perfect humanity. I've never sinned, and now I'm taking on sin itself. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became sin for us. That's a huge weight, and he is trembling beneath the weight of the sin of the world here. But notice his prayer going on, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He continues his prayer here, understanding what is to come. And he's submitting himself to the Father's will, recognizing that the plan of redemption, again, all roads come through the cross here. He understood this was the way it had to be. And why did it have to be this way? Because going all the way back to a different garden. Here he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, we know that from Matthew and Mark. Luke just calls it the place. His readers knew what that place was. But going back, from not from this garden, but all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Jesus understood that from that point on, redemption had to come through him. As the perfect Son of God, the perfect Son of Man, who had never sinned, who knew the end from the beginning, but all roads had to lead through him. And so he, he was willing to endure this. He said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. This is a good prayer for us to pray as well. Make God's will your greatest desire, no matter what consequences he has for you. Sometimes doing what's right will mean great sorrow, great agony, great consequences and grief and even danger. Sometimes we've heard people say that the safest place in the world is being in the center of God's will. And I would simply reply to that, here Jesus is in the center of God's will and he was crucified for it. So I don't think we want to say that the safest place in the world is being in the center of God's will. I would simply say, be submitted to the will of God regardless of what's going to come. And sometimes that means you're going to be a missionary in a place where you very well could die because of the message that you're preaching. We need people in those places. So Jesus understood what was to come. In verses 43 through 46, he depended on the help only God could give to undo the curse that came from the Garden of Eden here in the Garden of Gethsemane. He depended on the help only God could give. You see in verse 43, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And that calls to mind Matthew 4, 11, or the parallel passage in Mark 1, 13, where Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And right after his temptation, you read in those two passages in Matthew and Mark that an angel appeared to strengthen him. And here's an angel again giving divine help from heaven to Jesus in this moment of trial. He leaned on the strength that only God could give him. And as a result, in verse 44, he being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. He didn't shirk away from this difficult moment. He took the grace God gave him and prayed even more. I recently listened to a speaking of, speaking of agony here and just trying to give a, a picture for you with regard to agony. I, I listened to a podcast recently about a church in Oregon where the pastor had uh, committed adultery. And one of the other pastors on staff there was responsible for explaining to the congregation what had happened. And so they gathered the church together for a members meeting. And what this pastor said on the podcast I listened to was, I wish, I'll just read you the direct quote, 
He said, I wish I could somehow bottle up the cries and the agony that we heard that night and present it to folks and say, this is what you will hear if you fail your congregation. So this is a podcast for pastors I was listening to. I wish I could bottle up the cries and the agony that we heard that night. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Maybe it was at a funeral. Maybe it was at the side of a road where someone has just died in a car accident. Maybe it was at the hospital. You could go on and on. Have you ever seen somebody in utter agony? Great sobs and tears. And what Jesus is going through here, the agonizing pain he's experiencing, having to bear the weight of sin. And his response was he prayed more earnestly. Which makes me think of Hebrews 5, verse 7. Clayton preached on several weeks back now about the fact that great, through great tears and cries, Jesus offered up his prayers to heaven and the Lord heard him because of his reverence. We read in, Matthew, uh, in Hebrews 5.7. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Notice here he's, Luke is using a simile, a pretty specific kind of simile here, like where uh, he is a doctor. So there's a couple parts of this this passage that are informed by the fact that Luke is a physician. But I think he's specifically drawing attention to this sweat of Jesus, the great agony that Jesus is going through, just as a way of showing that this was no light thing for Jesus. I can think of a, a time where uh, I was at a wedding. I was in a wedding in South Carolina in the summer, outdoors, in a cornfield. And it was like 100 degrees. And one of the other guys in the, in the wedding party took off his dress shirt and wrung out the sweat from it. That's how hot it was in this blessed cornfield. I'm sure it was a beautiful wedding for that couple. But uh, for those of us who were passing out from the heat, it was not that great. All I'm saying was, those were great drops of sweat that we were all experiencing together here. But Luke is trying to say here, Jesus was enduring such tremendous agony. It was almost as if he had been gashed in the forehead and blood was pouring out. I don't think he's actually saying he was bleeding here, but it looked like that because of how profusely he was sweating out of agony. But what you notice here is Jesus turning to his father in his moment of weakness, so to speak. And I want to urge you to turn to the Lord for spiritual strength as well. As I talked about earlier, be aware of the temptation to turn elsewhere. Be aware of the temptation to turn to a friend or even one of your elders. Uh, to turn to entertainment or to food or to drink or to urge uh, to an urge you demand a break. Say, you've got to leave me alone. I've got to have a break here. These are all kind of normal human ways of responding to great suffering and temptation. But instead, we need to turn to the Lord and the strength that He can give us. And so maybe you could... Text a fellow church member something brief and to the point. Please pray for me. I'm tempted right now to give up hope in this trial I'm enduring. That would be a beautiful text to send to a fellow church member and say, I need your help right now. The Lord strengthens us in His time and in His way so that we can fulfill our responsibilities, so that we can endure temptation. Jesus then rose from prayer, came to the disciples, and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So there's prayer on the front end, prayer on the back end, prayer in the middle. I think this passage is saying Jesus submitted to his Father, to his Father's will, because he understood what was to come. The fact that the 
plan of redemption came through him. Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will. Then secondly, in verses 47 to 53, verses 47 to 53, the second half of the passage, Jesus submitted himself to the angry mob. Jesus submitted himself to his Father's will, and now he submits himself to the angry mob. In verses 47 to 48, he endured betrayal. While he was still speaking to his disciples, saying that they should rise and pray that you won't enter into temptation, there came a crowd. Maybe they're holding torches. It appears this is in the middle of the night. And at the front of this crowd, not leading them as in being a great leader, but as being, I'm going to be the one that shows you where Jesus sleeps every night. Because he had just been there the night before. Of course Judas knew where Jesus was going to be at this point. You wonder whether the other disciples had realized yet that Judas wasn't there. Maybe they had. Obviously, it's silent here. Luke is silent about that. The other apostles are silent about that as well. But Judas leads this angry crowd to Jesus to betray him. And Jesus endures this betrayal. Jesus said to Jesus, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss, with a sign of love? that you would only give to someone because of great enduring friendship. You kiss someone on the cheek. There's multiple references to this kind of activity throughout the New Testament, a cultural practice that is still common in some parts of our world today. But you only kiss someone on the cheek because you have great affection for them, not so that that person can be killed as a result. Jesus endured this betrayal. Judas had turned away from the Lord, and I want to ask you right now, what's going to prevent you from turning away from the Lord? When it becomes too unpopular to believe what the Bible says, to follow Jesus, too difficult to go where he calls you to go, what is it that's going to keep you from betraying him, from turning away? We talked about this a few weeks ago, but I would say the shortest answer is continue to repent and believe. Repent of your sin, believe the gospel. Avoid isolation. Let other believers speak the truth in love to you. I have a friend in the Secret Service. I've told you about him multiple times, either in Sunday school or Wednesday nights or perhaps in here. He was in my wedding. Good friend. I still text him occasionally. He never writes back. Why? Because he considers himself not to be a Christian anymore. Why? Because he was stationed in such a place at such a time where he's away from his family, he's away from his church where he was a member, no one could speak truth into his life, he's only in isolation with a few particular people at any given time, none of them were Christians. And after you do that for months and months into years, now the claims of Christianity start to sound too weird. Now the pull of the world starts to sound too loud. And so I would simply urge you not to isolate yourself. Don't let others isolate themselves. Call them, write them, visit them, pray for them. James 5, 19-20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You catch that? You, as a Christian, have the power to help pull someone back out of the flames. That's language from Jude, which is drawing from Zechariah. You can help save someone's soul, James says here in chapter 5. Save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins by being in that person's life. 
Not in an annoying way. You don't need to be an annoying jerk about it. But you can be persistent. You can love that person even when they're kind of ready to be done with you. As it seems my friend in the Secret Service is ready to be done with me if he never texts back anymore. Jesus endured betrayal. Remember last week you had this passage where Jesus told his disciples, you're going to need supplies now that you didn't necessarily need before. And he tells them to make sure you have a sword because you're going to be sleeping outside. There may be wolves or lions or any number of other dangers. And the disciples were like, hey, look, we've got two swords. And now here comes the sword again in verse 49. Jesus loved his enemies here in verses 49 through 51. When those who were around him, that's the disciples, saw what would follow, that would be Jesus is about to be dragged away by Judas and this angry mob, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And it, again, pointing back to verse 38, what we saw last week. And it seems like one of them was a little overexcited about this first opportunity to use his sword. And we find out in other gospel accounts, it's Peter himself who always seems a little too eager. And here he takes his sword and swipes off the ear of a guy named Malchus. Again, we only learn a few of these details, like who it was with the sword and who it was who had his ear chopped off from other apostles, from other gospel accounts. But Jesus, instead of saying, yeah, that's a great idea. Go ahead and get your two swords out, guys, and let's go to war against this huge crowd of people. Instead, he says, enough of this. Put that down. You are fighting the wrong way. Jesus said no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. Again, Luke, as a physician, is the only one of the four gospel accounts who tell us that Jesus healed his ear. And I just want to ask you, if you had your ear chopped off, and then someone miraculously healed it, would you still want to crucify that person? Can you believe the stubborn hearts of this angry mob? But what Jesus did is He practiced what He preached. Back in Luke chapter 6, He said to love your enemies and to pray for those who despitefully hate you. And He's doing that right here by saying, look, we're fighting the wrong kind of war here, guys. Put your swords down. This moment has to happen this way in order for me to atone for your sins and maybe even for theirs. Imagine if when we get to heaven, we meet Malchus. He says, I... I felt my own ear be reattached to my body. And at that point, I simply confess and believe that Jesus was truly God. We won't know till the last day whether that happens or not. So Jesus endured betrayal. He loved his enemies. And finally, in verses 52 and 53, he saw the deeper reality. What do we mean by that? Let's read these verses and I'll tell you what we mean by that. Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus saw the deeper reality of what was happening here. He understood this was a satanic moment. This was not just the most important people in Jerusalem coming out to get him, though it was that. How can you tell that a wedding or a funeral or some other activity is really important by the kind of people who are there, right? If there's some ball at the White House and every important governor and leader in America is in that room at one time, you know that's an important place, an important time. 
Notice who it is here that's coming out to arrest Jesus. It's the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders, the people who oversaw the religious system in Jerusalem. They wanted to be there at this moment. They're not just going to assign some lackey to go do it for them. Of course, they had soldiers with them, fully armed. Otherwise, the, the disciples likely wouldn't have responded the way they did with this comment about the sword. But you had the most important people in Jerusalem out here in this garden in the middle of the night. Instead of being in bed, sleeping, they're out there arresting a guy who had done nothing wrong. That tells you it's an important moment, right? If those people are out there at that moment. But Jesus knew even more than having the most important people in that city, being in that garden right now, he knew this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And the deceiver, the evil one, that ancient serpent, the devil, as we read in the book of Revelation, all those names put together, this is his hour. This is the power of darkness. This is the moment where you see the power of evil itself. What you're doing reveals how evil Satan is. That you would crucify the sinless Son of God. And Jesus basically says, if I'm so dangerous, why didn't you arrest me sooner? Right? Think back to when the United States went in to kill Osama bin Laden. They did not watch him and just kind of like hang out with him in the caves of the Middle East. They went and got him because they knew how dangerous he was. They hadn't been just playing around. Jesus is saying, you guys sat next to me in the temple and you did nothing about it. And now you're coming out like I'm Osama bin Laden and you're coming with the biggest weapons you've got to get me? Come on, guys. And the way that they are waging war against Jesus and the way that Jesus' disciples want to wage war against these enemies brought to my mind an article that I read a couple of years ago, about five years ago, I came across this article by a theologian at Southern Seminary in Louisville named Jim Hamilton. And the article is called The Church Militant and Her Warfare. We Are Not Another Interest Group. That's the name of the title. And in the article, Jim Hamilton writes, The distinctive doctrines of Christianity and the hard edges of the faith are now hard to find in many evangelical churches, having been replaced by the guarantors of influence and success, self-help, moralism, psychology, therapy, and programs, programs, programs. Most sermons are more like pep talks from motivational speakers than they are proclamations of the living word of God. We evangelicals are waging war according to the flesh. We need to return to God's wisdom, which is the world's folly, God's power, which the world counts as weakness, and we look for the Lord to grant that the faith of astonishing numbers of people will not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. We need a great awakening. Our field of labor is neither the public policies being debated on the Senate floor nor the legal matters before the Supreme Court. Our field of labor is the place we have been assigned to plow, sow, and reap with a local body of believers with whom we have entered into solemn covenant before the Lord of heaven and earth. Christians, don't wage warfare against the evil one and against evil itself according to the terms of this world. What we're doing right now, preaching the Word of God as we did last Sunday and as we will a thousand Sundays from now, is how we wage war against the evil one and against evil itself. We say that the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, has the power of God to accomplish the work of God for the glory of God. And that's why you should be here. 
week after week to let the Word of God reverberate into your heart so then it goes out of your heart into the lives of the other people that you affect. We do not strike with the sword. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6. What Jesus does is He transfers us from this power of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's Colossians 1.13. And I want to urge you today, if you're here and you have never put your faith in Jesus, now is a great time for you to repent of your sin and turn away from trusting yourself or trusting your religion or trusting your background or your morality or your political party or anything else to save you. Your money will not save you. Nothing will. Put your hope in Jesus alone and turn to Him for forgiveness because He waged war the right way. He was willing to endure betrayal to love his enemies because he saw the deeper reality. That this was not about Roman soldiers against random uh, ragtag group of disciples. This was God against Satan. This was good against evil. Light against darkness. And as we read in John 1 and in 1 John 1 and 2 and 3, there is no darkness in Jesus. He is light himself. He is the epitome of light whereas Satan is the epitome of darkness. And what Jesus is doing here is recognizing the plan of redemption has to go through the cross. And so that's why he was willing to submit himself to the Father's will. He was willing to submit himself to the angry mob. He didn't give up. He endured to the very end. He did whatever he had to do to accomplish redemption. Some of you have heard me tell the story of Adolf Eichmann, who is one of the ringleaders, I suppose you could say, for the Nazis in World War II. And as soon as World War II ended, he went into hiding, and there were rumors that he was all over the world. Some people said he was in Israel. Some people said he was in America. Well, he ended up, he escaped kind of miraculously and got to Argentina, and he hid out there with his family for many years. Well, a group of people whose family members had been killed by Eichmann's plot uh, in Germany Essentially, Hitler said, I want to kill all these people. And Eichmann said, okay, here's how we're going to do it. And he established the plans. And now he's in hiding. People who had been related to people who had died in the Holocaust were trying to hunt him down, as happened with a number of, uh, of uh, German leaders. And they found out he was in Germany, or I'm sorry, they found out he was in Argentina. And they moved there and lived in safe houses together and worked night and day to develop everything they needed to go and grab him and take him back to the safe house and then eventually get him back to Israel where they could take him uh, for trial and bring him to justice. And the night that they were supposed to arrest him, you have problems with your car, you have problems with your weather, you have problems with the internal doubts of what if this isn't him? They thought they were pretty sure what if When we grab him, he yells out and his family comes out and the police get involved and now we're all dead. There were great doubts. And the question was basically, is it worth it for us to go through this or should we back out now? This is the moment of truth. What do we decide? And they decided to go for it. And they captured him. And they got him back to the safe house. And then they got him back to Israel. And then he was executed for the crimes he committed against millions of people. What they did was they recognized sometimes you have to do what's difficult even if it puts you in harm's way. 
And even that story, I was trying to think of something serious, even that story is a pale comparison to what Jesus went through to accomplish salvation for you. So Christian, will you praise him for the agony that Jesus went through, for his faithful endurance? And non-Christian, we're so glad you're here. Will you come back again and keep hearing us say that Jesus is our priceless treasure, that he is our great redeemer, that he is our friend? Will you trust in him today? We pray that all of you will. Let's close in prayer. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus. We do indeed praise him for his endurance. 